0: Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at MarksDailyApple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at PrimalBlueprint.com.
1: Okay, Dr. Greg Kelly, now we are rolling. Nice to catch up with you before the, the button went on. And it seems like we have some fun stuff to talk about. And I'd just like to um, get your
2: your background and your area of expertise. Sure. So, um, kind of the, the quick intro is: I was an engineer officer in the Navy. After that, went into naturopathic school, um, became a naturopathic doctor in the mid '90s, and have background seeing patients, working in corporate wellness, and most recently, I'm the um, lead formulator, and part of the science team at NeuroHacker Collective. So areas I would think of myself as knowing a lot about include things to do with weight loss, circadian rhythms, or body clock. You know, um, I feel pretty expert on nootropics, the brain, immunity, you know, dealing with stress. So fairly diverse areas.
1: Yeah, and what are some of the recent breakthroughs that have been kind of off the beaten path in terms of what we've heard and uh, are are practiced in in the mainstream that have promise and uh, helping people make breakthroughs?
2: Sure. Well, for the last couple years, I've I've really had my head into, in general, what I would categorize as the anti-aging space. And there's quite a few... I would say like early stage breakthroughs, but I think we're on the cusp of, you know, potentially big breakthroughs. And when you look at like the drug development pipeline for that, the most advanced things are what are called senolytics. Are those something that you've um, heard of? Never heard of it. So, um, so really in a general sense, and I'm going to trade off accuracy for understandability. So, for anyone that's you know listening in, that's you know, like an immunologist or yeah,
1: you know, bring it on, critics.
2: Let's go. Come on. So, just a general thing. Think of you know we have healthy cells, we have cancerous cells, and in between those, we have cells that have started to become damaged, and we have cellular programs that freeze them there, preventing them from getting to be cancerous. So those are called senescent cells. They're sometimes um, referred to as zombie cells. The idea being that they're It's a a useful thing that they were frozen in between, but our immune system should ideally clean them up and get rid of them because as we get older, these senescent cells accumulate, and then they um, can infect other cells, essentially create more zombie cells, and they tend to put out a lot of inflammatory molecules. So they contribute to a lot of the, the tissue damage and tissue disease we have with aging. So senolytics would be the class of compounds that kill those cells off. So so it's a
1: supplement or a drug
2: what are these things where do they fall so the the ones that are being invested in the what i would think of as the pharma pipeline those will be obviously drugs right people have patented molecules and are trying to advance those all the way through testing but the things that have been the most studied to date one is a combination of a supplement quercetin which is found in the outer skins of red onions would be one of the best food sources, capers, another great food source of versitin. And then a drug called dasatinib that's used in some blood cancers. So that stack of D and Q is what I would call it has been the most studied so far. The other compound that's been, um, I think it's the Cleveland Clinic who's doing a pilot study on it is fisetin, which is another flavonoid, so another like dietary supplement compound. So those are the two things. And what you do with senolytics is you would take those in bursts. So the idea isn't like you would take very high doses of these and for a couple of days at most at a time and then recycle or repeat that cycle periodically. Because really what you're trying to do is take massive doses. You're going to kill probably some healthy cells as well as the senolytic cells, but you're kind of um, resetting the slate, so to speak. Interesting. So I think what we'll likely see is the first drug approved as an anti-aging drug would be in that category eventually when it gets there. I don't know, but in the meantime, what you see with a lot of biohackers is they're either doing the DMQ stack or Fisatin or some combination of those.
1: And that uh, intermittent use is, is uh, going to, um, counter the objection that if you're if you're taking these um these antioxidants all the time you're going to reduce your defenses or something is that in my understanding
2: yeah that's um so with um what I would think of as classical antioxidants vitamin c vitamin e as examples those are great things to do to get the best muscle response to exercise we we need to make a certain amount of reactive oxygen species to have the right adaptation to exercise, so doing a lot of those things essentially blunts that. Um, quercetin may be in that world too. So, um, yeah, so quercetin um, is something you'll see in a lot of allergy formulas, inflammation formulas in the whole foods or at GNC, but used as a senolytic, you do high doses for, like I said, a couple of days at a time, and then maybe repeat that once a month or month, once a quarter. So, and then the other thing is, Part of the reason that these senescent cells accumulate as we get older in tissues is because our immune system is not doing a good job finding them and getting rid of them. So the other part of what I think of as the the two-step process of getting rid of senolytic cells would be doing something to really rev up your immune system to counter what's called immunosenescence, like the aging of the immune system. And what are some of those strategies? Well, I think it. I think there's a lot of things that you m- might do, but I think it can be helpful to understand how the immune system ages. If, that, if we've got a little bit of time for that, so the, so in a general sense, we've got two branches of the immune system. One is in, inherited; it's called our innate immune system. We've got things like dendritic cells, natural killer cells in that. We also then have what we call the adaptive immune system. So the, that's the immunity that we learn. So when you hear of antibodies, they would fall into that. And as we age, there's problems in both. Um, but with senescent cells, the things that are specialists at killing those are what are called cytotoxic cells. So natural killer cells, cytotoxic T cells. And so there's quite a few things actually in the, the natural world that make a difference there. Almost anything with a lot of polysaccharides, beta glucans. So that's where you have all your mushrooms, like your reishi, Mitaki, um, um, Should uh, those um, the yeast beta glucans? Those things all can help the, that natural killer cell activity. Spirulina, which is another you know kind of a superfood, is also really great for that. So there's a really a, almost a whole ensemble of things you could put together that can help optimize an aging immune system.
1: Where does fasting fall into the mix there as a strategy to raise the killer T cells and so forth?
2: So I don't know about long-term fasting, but you're familiar with the fasting mimicking diet, Walter Longo's work. So what he's shown is within the first 24 to 48 hours of his fasting mimicking diet, which isn't a a water fast, it's it's a very specific Um, approach but um, white blood cells you start to actually get rid of the exhausted t-cells specifically and rejuvenate the other ones so like you essentially create self-renewal of some of your immune system so that's like a super important strategy for countering an aging immune system
1: so i guess you would uh, put all these into the mix together where you're doing some uh, regular fasting, maybe some extended fasting at times, and then some strategic supplementation or finding the uh, the you know the superfoods that contribute to uh, a favorable immune response.
2: I would say uh, for sure, I'm, I'm probably not as big a proponent of prolonged fasting as maybe some of your other guests are. Um, I've spoken to. Uh, some people that work with Walter Longo's, you know, including, you know, doctors and researchers. And one of the things, at least that I've heard repeatedly, it's the fasting and the refeeding. It's that combination The w- during that fasting period. So one of the things that happens as we age both in immune cells, but other cells in the body is that a lot of proteins get kind of gunked up. So what ends up happening to get proteins, through the membranes of our cells or the membranes in mitochondria, they're constantly folded. And then once they make it through, they're unfolded. So that folding and unfolding, that's called protein quality control. Um, As we get older, the misfolded ones accumulate. So if you think of um, like tau proteins or plaques with dementia, those are misfolded proteins.
1: So they never got in to the cell. They just lingered around because they were misfolded. Is that?
2: No, they're inside cells. Oh, they're misfolded.
1: inside. Okay, right. And they're misfolded. Just, just bad bad luck, huh?
2: Right. I and mean, It's normal, right? So we have defenses yeah. that should get rid of those. And one of the things that it seems like happens when we go low protein. So Longo's approach to fasting mimicking diet is really a reduced calorie. Usually he'll recommend five days. And during that, you're allowed to eat about half your normal calories. It's more specific than this, but I'm just going to give the general. Mm -hmm. But you go super low in protein. So really, you're eating good fats and vegetables exclusively. And what seems to happen is when we restrict protein, whatever intelligence we have in our body uh, seems to target those damaged ones and cannibalize those for our needs. So we should be cleaning those up anyways. But during those brief fasts, we selectively seem like we target those. So at least, um, what's happened for me and some other people I've read that tend to do these short fasts is it doesn't cause a de- like a detrimental effect on our muscle mass because we're not really d- like selectively destroying good quality proteins. We're targeting the gunked up ones.
1: And um, with when- an appropriate fast and right. in in Longo's case, a little bit of caloric intake. So I know the science isn't clear there, but it seems to me, uh, looking from a distance at it, uh, that a whole bunch of different nuanced strategies could work, as long as you're, uh, you know, honoring these big picture insights, like not overfeeding yourself and uh, depleting cellular energy from now now and then with uh, a hard workout,
2: for example, or an extended fast, uh, whatever else. Yeah, one of the nice things of these like I'll usually do an approach similar to his for three to five days, once a quarter. And I find during that, I can still lift heavy at the gym. Um, If I was extending even his moderate fast past that, it becomes a little more challenging to live my normal life. (laughs) I think that's, it's a good quarterly house cleaning almost to do some kind of a brief fast. And then again, that period when you refeed tends to be really anabolic. So now. We what we do remake the white blood cells for our immune system proteins for our cells and mitochondria tend to be better quality. So that refeeding period is great. So I, rather than having few really long fasts, I'm much more of a fan of brief. So you get the benefits of both the fast and the refeed more times through the year.
1: Uh, so if someone's on a 16 and eight pattern, which has been bantered about as a highly recommended strategy where you're banking a lot of fasted hours every day, uh, would that achieve some of these goals for autophagy and the, the clean out, the recycling process?
2: So th- my understanding is absolutely yes. So I, I think of that style of intermittent fasting as time-restricted eating, and for sure, especially towards the, that end of the fasting window, you're going to be much more in an autophagy state.
1: And then the refeeding has those anabolic benefits and um, can get you get you back in the groove.
2: Right, and I, I mean I know some people that are hardcore and have really brief windows. Um, I think for most people the sixteen to eight is you know more than sufficient. And the key thing really is at minimum not eating into your you know your night hours and messing up your body clock
1: oh yeah let's go into circadian rhythm there to transition, uh, and how bad is that <laughs> and um, what's the what's going on when we're kind of uh, eating closer to bedtime, eating after the sun sets, and uh, messing with the uh, hormonal signaling accordingly
2: I think I, I tend to think of um, the reason we have circadian rhythms in part is it gives a time period across the 24 hour cycle where every job gets its time in the sun, so to speak. And one of the things, um, that I remember being surprised about when I first started reading about circadian rhythms 20 years ago or so was that we actually make a lot of stomach acid starting around 10, 11 at night. And the idea is that it was to decontaminate things that had built up in our digestive system over the day. Uh, Because of eating, we hadn't really decontaminated it. So if we're still trying to digest food, when it's trying to decontaminate, again, that cleaning cycle doesn't happen. And then over time, when things don't get cleaned up, the accumulated, one of the thoughts of aging is that aging is really a game of damage accumulation. So the more we pay attention to cleanup processes, especially when we're young, the more gracefully we'll age in general
1: yeah that's a huge uh statement or insight to appreciate. I heard it from Art Devaney first where he said there's no such thing as healthy aging, so you know we 're all going to die and we 're all going to look differently when and perform differently when we 're fifty as opposed to twenty five and when we 're seventy five but uh, literally speaking uh the the statement you just made is is literally true it's it's, it's cellular damage rather than this uh you know inevitable uh, process that is is associated with chronology
2: right so there's like the way that i tend to think of it you know where we have our birth age our chronological age and then we have our functional age so you know i think there's things most of us can do that will create somewhat of a gap there in a positive direction like we, we can't avoid it altogether but we can certainly do a lot to make it so that we age more gracefully and can do more in terms of you know, function as we get older
1: Oh my gosh, especially today in uh, USA and, you know, developed nations, the average is so pathetic. And, you know, if your functional age is is near your chronological age, you're in a pretty a pretty sorry-ass group. I think Jane Leno gave a quip. Uh, he said he, it, the news came out that uh, now 64% of Americans are classified as overweight or obese. Um, and, and then the punchline was, uh, so I've just met my New Year's resolutions for you know getting healthier because he's you know he, he's in there in the in the in the average yeah tough stu- tough stuff do you, do you know of any like resources to um are you are you uh, favorable to the um the the testing that's available um for the telomeres or, or ways to you know accurately convey how your functional age compares to your chronological age
2: so the smartest people I know in the anti-aging world seem to almost all be of the opinion that DNA methylation tests oh. would be the the best of what's available. So um, Grim Age, True Age, there's different names. My DNA Age, I think, are some of the um, the names of the tests. But there's there's a few different companies that do it, and so that would be one. I'm not as big a fan of uh, telomere testing for a couple of reasons. One, it's still not clear how accurate the, cause they're really doing it on, I think it's white blood cells. It's what they're testing, how that would correspond to tissue telomeres. And it's really a noisy test. Meaning if you've got a cold or flu or lots of other things Uh. can throw a monkey wrench in the accuracy. And it takes a long time, really like you'd want that test done over a year So you get your baseline. So it's not like a fairly quick where the DNA methylation, you could get some reasonable feedback within a couple months. So um, there's also different calculations on, um, it's called phenotypic age. I think it's um, Levine's work, but it's it's normal um, things from um, blood work. Uh, I think there's 10 different things and you can plug them into spreadsheet calculators and it will crunch out your functional age. Another thing we use, at least at the office at Neurohacker Collective, is a device called Age Meter, and it's um, it's basically an iPad with an app built in that has a bunch of brain tests, a hearing test, um, reaction times, but also um, pulse oximetry and spirometer are Bluetooth with it, so it measures twelve things, and those. Those are then calculated to produce someone's functional age. Now, each one of these is going to give you a different functional age. So the the phenotypic age, from what I've seen, that one tends to um, make someone seem a lot younger than their chronological age. The age meter device, you don't see that much of a gap there. Like usually three or four years is the most I've seen on that. Um, But they they all have their strengths and weaknesses because they're testing different things. And at this point, I don't know that we have one that's a clear winner. But the my DNA or the DNA methylation, um, from what I've seen going to anti-aging conferences, that's the most used.
1: I guess there are some practical measurements that would be relevant here. You know, I'm I'm trying to clear a high jump bar at at my age and uh, see yeah. if I can you know uh, approximate the great feats of my past or, or just, uh, you know, decline uh, as little as possible uh, every decade with whatever performance standards that I like to measure how many pull-ups I can do or what have you. So um, there's probably, you know, if you want to geek out, I'm sure you can do stuff, but you can also just kind of, you know, walk into the gym and see, see how, things, how things go.
2: For sure. Like um, what they use a lot in actually medical research on frailty or is grip strength is one of the things. Another is um, the five-minute walking test, so it's basically how like how fast like your gait speed is, and so if you find yourself walking slower and slower, that's you know not a great thing. And then balance, you know, so especially balancing on one foot with um, like his clothes would be a good test, right? Because mm. that has to integrate a lot of things. Love it. So, like some of those things improve with practice, but they're good functional tests for how healthy we are in a aging sense.
1: Yeah, and in our book, Keto for Life, we cite research from the Cooper Institute in Dallas, the aerobics uh, promoters, and they like to use the one-mile run time at age 50 as a huge predictor of longevity or your chances of making it to age 85 in good health and the cutoff standards for superior, where if a male can run seven minutes or a female eight minutes, or excuse me, eight minutes and nine minutes, I think was the superior category. And then if you can't run a 12 minute mile or 13 minute mile female, uh, you're in the needs to improve category. In other words, your mortality risk is, is skyrocketed from someone who's in decent shape to be able to, to hit the mile time. And I know there's, um, Uh, squat tests and there's push-up tests that they've done with firefighters with the same the same insights. so um that's that's pretty fun to just kind of track things and uh, what else is on the cutting edge that that you can talk about at neurohacker collective and what do you what do you guys do tell us about your operation
2: yeah so um we're basically uh we really have two different things going on we have our own podcast collective insights um and we also are a supplement company. So that's really how we make our money to sponsor some of the community things we're doing. So we started out as a nootropic company. Our first product, uh, Qualia, was the name, or is the name. And it's a, a nootropic stack. So something to improve focus, attention, memory, really you know, to make the, the brain really rock. Um, our next thing we did was something designed really to help cells make more energy. So mitochondria, autophagy, some of the things we've talked about. Um, more recently, we're in the process of just launching a product we're calling Qualion Night. But it's a it, really, when I think of that, getting back to circadian rhythms, we have, I, I tend to think of, we've got daytime physiology and nighttime physiology. So things that tend to be really like surge, say, at seven to nine in the morning are going to be at their lowest in the evening. So you think of cortisol. As a, like that's going to typically surge between seven and nine. And ideally the basal level of cortisol is going to be super low by midnight. And the flip of that is melatonin. So those are our, like what I think of is melatonin is often talked about as a sleep hormone, but it's really a darkness hormone. Even animals that sleep during the day make melatonin at night. So it's, it sets that darkness physiology. And so then you have all kinds of other things. So growth hormone, the surge of that is a little bit before melatonin, I believe. Um, we have, for a lot of minerals, there's a, a rhythm in the blood. So you probably heard that certain minerals compete with each other for absorption. Uh-huh. So zinc and copper are a classic one that, you know, that this idea that, that you know, usually people will say, take this ratio of zinc and copper um, because they compete. Well. In the blood, the rhythm of zinc is phased out from copper. So zinc tends to mirror cortisol. It, it has a surge in the blood early in the morning. Copper is much more late in the day, evening. So the, the reason for that, um, this might be getting a little bit like more in the weeds, but the way our body responds to things is based on change. So like quite often you'll hear like, oh, or see a study like, the blood levels of folic acid were too high. Well, that, that really means nothing, right? It's the change in the blood levels that um. dictates response. So think of vision or hearing. So there, there's a, an old law, it's called the Hooks-Weber law. Like, believe it or not, I went all the way through naturopathic school, pre-med, never once encountered this physiological law, read about it in a psychology textbook. But Hooks-Weber law was, um, like a. a something that was found in the 1800s but the idea has to do with relative change so like a a quick way to storify it would be if right now in the room i'm in or you're in we lit one candle wouldn't really make much of a difference in the lighting right we'd notice it but it's not not that big a deal but if your room was completely dark and we lit that same candle that would create a huge change we would notice that so think of our eyes and ears as our receptors right they're how we um, interact with the outside world. But each of our cells has all kinds of receptors as well. They would have cortisol receptors and melatonin receptors and, you know, receptors that pay attention to zinc and copper. So it's the changes of these things that allow them to hear the signal and respond. So one of the, the, the principles with healthy aging is you want like signal to noise ratio. You want the basal levels of something to be low because it's the, the proportional change that matters. So if like, say your midnight cortisol arbitrary was five units and your morning was 20, you got like a five to one ratio. But if your midnight was one and your first thing in the morning was 20, you have a 20 to one. So that same cortisol surge is gonna create a much bigger response. So what you see with aging, is the basal levels the noise of pretty much everything goes up? So the same um, like surge in quantity doesn't produce anywhere near the response hormonally or in other signaling that it would when we're young. Does that make sense?
1: It makes sense, but I'm I'm uh, amazed to hear that everything goes up as we age. Like the baseline levels of all these important hormones, neurotransmitters. I, that I would I mean, say
2: everything, but most things for sure. So even if you think of something like heart rate that athletes measure, right? So the classic thing that happens as we age is resting heart rate increases and max heart rate decreases, right? Like that plasticity has narrowed. Uh You look at temperature. So temperature also has a circadian rhythm. Temperature tends to be at its lowest about an hour or so before we wake. And it's highest about 14 to 16 hours later. So, you know, say like it's if we were actually to measure it across waking hours, it would be lowest when we woke and highest, you know, say somewhere about 14 hours later.
1: Right before and, bed, I guess, for
2: yeah, 16 it's hours. To, it's time to go to bed, man. It's going to start to drop as we, that's a, a cue to, I, I call it the sleep bus. But as temperature drops, that's a, a sleepiness cue that helps us fall asleep. sleep. And the difference between that morning low and the peak what you would see if you measure temperature in a hundred people is the healthiest people would have the biggest gap. Oh, right. So they, they're going to at the peak be like a normal temperature, 98.6 or so, but their waking might be 96 and a half.
1: And that's uh, there's some healthy range where if you're talking about a, an elite athlete or uh, a starting player on the Ducks football team is going to have a more temperature range during the day
2: yes i would expect that yep wow where the the where those would like they could be at the highest point above a normal temperature because really what we call a normal temperature is not at all what an average person's temperature is Um, but yeah they're going to have a bigger swing so at one point i measured body temperatures like that on patients students and and very routinely the healthiest people had the biggest swing and what you often then see is in really poor health, there's almost no swing, or sometimes you'll even see it flip-flop, where it's higher in the morning and lower at night. That's usually um, a really strong clue that their circadian rhythms are completely a mess. Oh, mercy. So it's like, it's a really simple test that for some reason, almost no one ever does.
1: So I'm going to start doing that. We got a thermometer around here to zap people before they come in the door. Let's track that morning, morning, evening temperature change. Very
2: interesting. So that, that's, that gives a sense of like, it's a, another functional way to measure um, circadian rhythms without having to go to the um, hormones, right? So like it a, a quick half to kind of get insights into that. But most physiological pro- processes have some kind of a rhythm. So I know for me, often when I hear about something, I want to know what it is, but I want to know when that was. So with fasting and the um, longevity, anti-aging, you hear a lot about mTOR. Is that something your guests have talked about? Sure. So the idea is that you want to, by going low protein or doing these fast, you um, decrease mTOR, right? And when I heard that, it didn't quite make sense to me because we also need mTOR to prevent sarcopenia, right? Like mTOR is something that's triggered by protein intake. And we know that sarcopenia, muscle wasting, is something that we don't want as we age. So there was something that just didn't make sense to me. And one of the things that I'll always do when I'm learning about something new is plug into PubMed, whatever the thing is, and then circadian, <laughs> and just see what comes up. So there hasn't been much looked at for mTOR. The, um, but one of the animal studies that looked at fasting and measured mTOR, but did it in a circadian way, looked at it across time, What they found out was depending when you measured mTOR fasting either decreased it kept it the same or increased it so it basically shifted the like the spike still existed it just shifted where it was with time when we didn't have protein so it didn't decrease it it did if you measured it early but if you measured it A bit later, it looked like it was unchanged. And if you measured it even later in the day, it looked like it had gone up because you shifted the rhythm later. But that makes sense. Like that that big spike, you were now, instead of measuring it here, the whole thing had shifted.
1: Right. I have also heard that uh, it might be favorable to strive for sort of a pulsatile Uh, delivery of these hormones so that you don't want to chronically elevate IGF and mTOR and and accelerate the growth factors and the cell division. But if you go on a feast or famine dietary pattern like a a 16 and 8 or uh, doing some regular sustained fasting where you are going to lower insulin and lower these things, and then uh, when it's time to uh, enjoy some nutritious food. You're perfectly, uh, you're perfectly happy with the spike in these important uh, agents. That uh, in in a different context, they're they're often criticized because we're talking about chronic overstimulation or chronic elevation.
2: Right, because what I think of when we when we now get into this like inter or like time restricted eating, the sixteen to eight by the end of that sixteen hour fasting window. Since we wouldn't have had protein now for at least 16 hours, maybe more, right? That and since mTOR tends to be very responsive to protein intake, we've just now really lowered the noise level. Like mTOR we've allowed mTOR to get really low. So now when we do eat proteins, so and we have a protein in our smoothie or you know eggs for breakfast and get the mTOR surge, we're getting a really crisp signal. Right. it right. so makes adds- sense. So that like that signal-to-noise ratio is at least how I think of things. We want to do things as much as we can to create the low background noise so that whenever we create the signal, we're getting maximum response from it. Interesting. That's one of the things with – like, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, say whatever the supplement is, a multivitamin, take it three times a day. Like, that seems completely counterintuitive to me. Like, uh, why would we want to create, like – the same levels of something in our blood across the entire day huh. like zinc, right that has a on its own of fairly strong surge just in the morning it would make much more sense to do, do your zinc with breakfast maybe your copper with dinner
1: so for optimizing circadian uh, there other insights about meal timing that you favor or even the timing of your workouts? I know we don't want to eat uh, near that, that 10 p.m. when the stomach acid starts to come out to play, so that's a good one. Um, or, or you know, try to limit your caloric intake after dark when uh, you start to go into repair and restoration mode rather than digestion and anabolic uh, factors going on. So we got that one down, but are there some other ones that you, uh, that you like? coffee obviously
2: makes a huge impact on body clock. And so um, like, at least for me, and I I don't know that this would be something I could generalize to everyone, but to some people for sure, I can get away with coffee without it really disrupting my sleep wave cycles. If I have it before noon and keep it moderate, if I, I I can't even get away with coffee, ice cream at dinner, just the small amount of coffee in. Is enough to throw a little bit of a monkey wrench in my sleep. So, anything with caffeine for a lot of people, the the timing is going to really matter. And so, coffee generally early in our biological day, like in the sun's day, is going to be you know fairly neutral to the body clock. But once you get past noon, um, so I I was in the like I said, an officer in the Navy, and you know between shift work and you know, sleeplessness, the Navy ran on coffee in the eighties when I was an officer, but you know, you end up desensitizing to it as well. So coffee's a big one. But one of the things, um, I mentioned that we had worked on a, like a product we're calling Qualia night. we probably spent two years, um, at neurohacker collective researching different ingredients, mocking up mixes of different herbs, amino acids, vitamins, minerals, and having people take them and one of the things that we found is even taking things at dinner so many things were not neutral for sleep like never mind beneficial that a lot of these things that would seem like huh let's put this in and have people take it for dinner and see what happens and all of a sudden their sleep would be completely chaotic so my guess would be a lot of like a lot of people that are well intentioned taking good things but maybe taking supplement some of it with breakfast, some of it with with dinner. At least my um, guess based on my experience is there's very likely to be some things at that dinner dose that aren't favorable to sleep, but they're not neutral. They're probably a net negative. So I just think timing is always super important for everything we do and that you're going to be a little different than me. I've I've always been um, like a pretty much of a morning person going back even to the Navy. I'm someone that Like I I go from sleep to wake and I'm bright, energetic, ready to go. I don't have much of a, like a slow transition and I've maintained that. I'm late fifties now. Um, so I've always thought of myself as a morning person and conversely, um, I talk about the sleep bus. So, um, the way I would describe it to patients, students, et cetera, is think of sleep as like a bus or train that comes on a schedule. Um, when it comes, it's easy to fall asleep. But if you miss that and decide now, okay, now it's a half hour later, the bus left without me, I'm ready to go to bed now, that's not your call. You have to wait till the next bus comes to the station. So what I'm really good at, and this maybe goes back to the Navy, being so sleep deprived, is um, being able to tell when the bus is starting to pull into this station and get on it. So because of that, I, like on my Aura Ring, I'm asleep within a couple minutes. And, um, but that that's unusual, right? Like what you would see in a lot of people is they struggle falling to sleep. They struggle waking up, you know, there's sleep's um, like a ubiquitous problem is what we've found when we've surveyed people.
1: Yeah. I wonder if that's mostly um, adverse lifestyle practices that you can point to, to contribute to not getting to sleep well, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, genetic particulars like being a morning person, we often hear that's uh, you know sort of a genetic thing, but I'm also wondering there's probably <laughs> the, the screen use late into the evening probably contributes to the idea that you're not a morning person
2: i think there's I think there's aspects of both I think there's um i mean it changes across the age span, right so um teenagers are notorious for being more owls,' where really old people for more that's called larks right um, super morning people. But one of the things that has been clear in research is that you can take someone that's a night person, and by getting them to have breakfast and morning light, you can drag their sleep-wake cycles earlier into the day. And generally, when that happens, a whole bunch of other things that would be biomarkers of health improve. So there's mm. obviously plasticity, and it's largely dictated off our habits, but you know, without question, some genetic component to it. I mean, there, there's, I think, a subset of people that um, genetically are short sleepers, as an example. Not many, but I, I, I've met some in my life that seem to thrive on five hours of sleep. Now, I'm not that person. Like I, I probably somewhere seven, seven and a half is my like, you know, high performance. But in that's typically in bed eight. And what ends up happening is there's a lot of delusional people that think they're really a short sleeper that aren't, right? That you can then start to see that with their body composition, with their food choices, with all kinds of healthy things. And I think it's the same with the like, night person that there's some people, probably a small percent, that, are, um, that if they did everything that we just talked about would still be night people. But I think a lot of people that think of themselves as night people it's their habits that are dictating that. So screen time being another.
1: Right. I, I've seen the research that an estimated 1% of the population are short sleepers or 5%, you know, the different things. And then there's probably 29% of people that believe they're one of those 1%. So it doesn't quite add up.
2: I, I've met two. Yeah. <laughs> and like legitimately over time they they stay physically fit, lean and, thrive on that but yeah it's there's not many definitely way less than think they are
1: so what about the uh prominent goal of dropping excess body fat where do some of your uh principles come into play such as the importance of circadian rhythm or uh the the, the supplement factors things like that
2: so with um the way i tend to i mean maybe at least the way i think of it so i think of um muscle is an adaptation right so when we say we train with weights the reason that our muscles get bigger and stronger at least this is my story so um, is that in anticipation of hey this person's going to lift weights again i better be more prepared right and and that that's how our, really everything in our system is, is designed to learn and adapt so when it comes to weight like i first would always say like well, what are we talking about like weights nebulous like i use shape as a better term But, you know, almost no one wants to lose muscle. You know, they want to lose body fat. So that's its own separate thing that's also adapting to meet its needs. So have you ever heard of Biosphere 2?
1: Yeah, the place in the desert where they live for a year or two?
2: Yeah, so they, yep, it was in, I think, the early 90s. And it was either six or eight people that went in to live in this dome. And they thought that they would be able to grow enough food to get essentially enough calories with what they already had stocked up on the shelves. And as it turned out, they were wrong. So I, it ended up for this, I don't know if it was one, I think it was one year if they lived in the dome, was that they could get about 17 to 1800 calories a day. So not like a huge deficit, but like a chronic one. So they were constantly hungry. They lost weight for the first few months and then plateaued. So. Even though they still had the caloric deficit, they didn't continue to lose weight. And then when they came out of Biosphere 2, they immediately had, you know, lab work, all these things measured, could eat to their heart's content, and then a month later had everything re-measured. I, I believe it was a month later. But. And so what they found is that super quickly they regained all the last, lost weight. Super quickly, right? But 100% of the weight they regained was fat. Wow. Well so they they were the game they ended up the same weight, but they were fatter right Now there's been like some studies in the military, um, you know, lots of things with long-term calorie restriction for weight loss purposes. But the term for that is called body fat overshoot. Um body fat
1: overshoot.
2: Or or dieting induced adiposity. Like basically oh. they get fatter because they did this. And the way I think it works is that the the same way that just talked about with muscle so it's almost as if there's some intelligence that runs how fat we are or how much energy is stored in fat cells and it it said all right well i don't know when this person's gonna you know live in a dome for a year and not have enough food again so i'll be more prepared next time and more prepared means having more body fat so the way i think about body fat and, and losing it is the opposite. Like we need to convince that intelligence that they don't need to defend as much. Cause until we do that, we've got no shot. Right. Cause it's, it's like in these studies, there was another study in world war two, the Minnesota starvation study. Mm-hmm. I, I know they've done documentaries on it, but it was this group of conscientious objectors that wanted to do, to do something for the war effort. So one of the things, or essentially the, the, Basis of this study was they knew there was going to be prisoners of war coming back that were going to be semi-starved. They wanted to see what would happen to someone under those circumstances and how to best refeed them. But they found that same thing in these people that they had ended up with dieting-induced adiposity. They all um, and it took on average two years for their bodies to get back to like normal after refeeding. Wow. And due to it, this
1: uh, prompted by the starvation they right, reacted really with uh hor- hormonal processes that caused them to overshoot I-, I know that's um jason fung's books like the obesity code talks about that at length and it's fascinating to to realize that you know the r- reduction of caloric intake is not this linear journey to the six-pack and there's all these other things in place especially over the long term where you're gonna you're gonna compensate in so many ways
2: well the other like Um, I'm a big Survivor fan. I've pretty much watched every season since 2000 or whenever it started. But what happened in the Minnesota semi-starvation is that these people became obsessed with food. And even when a movie was put on for their entertainment, they would focus only on the food scenes. They started to read cookbooks and, you know, magazines that showed pictures of food. So what happens um, when our brain is, like, one of our survival needs is not being met. The brain really gets all of its bandwidth consumed with that. So what you would see on Survivor is that within a week on Survivor, they're talking about food, all the rewards of food for a reason. That's the main thing they want. So what happens when we try to restrict calories for any duration of time, and it it kicks in quickly, is that that part of our brain – is really focused on getting that need met. And so it's, you know, and then the consequence, if we are successful at overriding that, is that we're going to eventually probably um, deplete that willpower reservoir, refeed, and now we get the dieting-induced adiposity. So it's just not a way you can win going that route, where, you know, there are, like, the intermittent fasting, working on sleep, body clock. I tend to think of when um, movement as like frequency of movement Uh, is a super important thing for staying lean. So if you think in terms of like, um, someone in a big city, a big part of their lifestyle is just walking different places because it's more convenient than anything else. And so city dwellers tend to be leaner. And the way that I would like, I would describe it my story is that that's saying like three moves is as good as a, fire, right? Like you move houses frequently, you're going to get rid of anything you don't absolutely need. <laughs>
1: I, like, I've never heard that. That's great. Three moves is as good as a fire yeah.
2: as far as purging junk. Yeah. And when we're moving frequently through the day, it's the same. Like we're, but whatever that intelligence is, isn't going to sacrifice muscle. So, but probably doesn't want to move as much weight around. So the best thing to sacrifice would be the body fat. So anyways, I think what ends up happening is you stack more and more of these things together, then you can become leaner and leaner, but in a sustainable way. And to me, I'm all about sustainability.
1: Right. The the sum total of all those things are sending the right genetic signals to get you to that good body composition, Dr. Fung likes to focus on insulin and things that lower insulin, such as fasting. Uh, And then you're, you know, eating a meal to your heart's content and you're you're not creating this artificial caloric deficit that's unsustainable. And it's kind of an interesting way to look at it, but especially I'm glad you brought up movement because there's so many peripheral benefits. You're not burning a thousand calories, climbing up two flights of stairs, but if you take that break from work, to go climb a couple flights of stairs, you're going to like kick back into uh, optimize fat burning, moderate your appetite and you're, you're maybe craving for sugar. If you sit there at your computer for too long without a break, your brain's going to get tired. You're going to crave sugar and you're going to be going in a different fork in the road uh, when it comes to, you know, daily lifestyle habits of sitting for long periods of time.
2: For sure. I think the, um, you know, it's always to me, Like I'm a biochemical nerd, so I love to understand how things happen, but I'm also um, like not as big a fan of generalized. So what you would actually see is that something like insulin resistance, which, you know, obviously your guests will talk about what you typically see. So like, let's take type two diabetes, right? So usually type two diabetics are overweight, right? They usually have lots of extra fat tissue and have had for quite a long time. Um, And the fat cells are actually not insulin resistant. It's their muscle cells that are. Oh. Right? Because the, by the fat cells saying insulin sensitive, fat can get into the fat cells, right? It can't get into the muscle where it could be used. And what then typically happens just in the time period leading up to being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, fat cells essentially throw their hands in the air and say, like, we're done. Like, we're like so mucked up, we can't even handle it. And they also become insulin resistant. And that's why blood sugar goes up because it's got, can't even get into fat cells anymore. So like the goal isn't just to be insulin sensitive or resistant. It's tissue specific, right? Like the goal is always to figure out how to get things into the tissues you want and not into the ones you don't want.
1: Right. So it goes in stages. The insulin resistance goes in stages starting with the muscle and it, uh, does it start with the, where's the liver come in, in that order of, uh, organs and tissues that become insulin resistant?
2: So the, the, the liver is really more of a metabolic transformation machine. So it's not like a storage machine, like tissues, like muscle or fat would be. So it's got its own rules, but like uh, quite often that tissue specificity is super important. Even with body fat, you've got subcutaneous fat you got visceral fat you've got like think of marbling like in a meat you've got the, the this marbling inside your your muscle tissues right so each of those things is a different clue to health like in general subcutaneous fat is not uh negative for health it tends to depending where that is it actually can be health positive in terms of its associations and um so this was an interesting study since you're an ex-triathlete right yeah yep yeah. so um I s- if you um just think in terms of subcutaneous fat, which endurance athlete would you guess would over the course of decades end up with the most? Uh a swimmer. By far, right? And it's cold water. Like it's blubber, right? It's that adaptation. It's 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 an insulative fat. So what you or what has been shown in studies is when long-term swimmers stop swimming, they tend to gain a lot more body fat than runners that have been burning the same amount of calories, right? They've been, but they tend to gain it as that insulative fat because that's the adaptation that they've created by their form of training. Right. So like, that's a super precise adaptation and it's not all bad, right? Brown fat's really important. That's Mm -hmm. an adaptation to cold subcutaneous to insulation. So it's really the visceral fat that there's, um, you know, not, that's unhealthy fat, right. That's stored in our, our organs, liver fat, obviously um, not a great thing. So, um, so anyways, yeah. I tend to like always think in these specific terms, like, like nothing's all good or all bad. Yeah. Well, especially great. that uh, distinction between
1: uh, regular old uh, Subcutaneous fat and then the visceral fat, which has so many health consequences, and I'm wondering uh, how do we target that and get rid of that as a priority? Is there any uh, any any insights there? Well, I
2: think um, sleep quality is huge for that. Oh, ah. so sleep apnea. People, unfortunately, people with sleep apnea that's often triggered by fat, but then it causes like, more visceral visceral fat to accumulate as long as it goes untreated. So my you know, I think even snoring is associated with higher visceral obesity. So sleep quality to me would be a huge way to indirectly target that type of fat. Again, movement, I think is really important. I know for me, um, it seems like lifting heavy weights Mm. as opposed to just weight training, specifically Mm. lifting heavy weights. Um, and then, um, So have you ever seen any of the studies where they've measured or they've had people take different durations of rest between sets and then measured what happens to hormones by varying the rest cycle? Yeah. Yeah. So in one of them, and I think it was people that would be in roughly our age. Like I think we're both in our, you know, mid to late fifties. I think they did um, one minute versus three to five minutes Uh and they then measured both, um, the response of growth hormone and, and testosterone immediately post-workout and then over two days, but then over a longer term, they measured gains in strength and size. And the best testosterone response was the longer duration of rest. Uh-huh. Um, and testosterone becomes, at least in my age, like a prized commodity, right? We want more of that. That's a really anabolic hormone growth hormone while it's often positioned that way it's it's the timing of it right like we want a good surge in the the late evening right after workouts really not that material testosterone so that what i found with me i used to be one of those people in the gym that would 30 seconds between yeah yeah yeah, tough guy suck it up right me too being yeah i wanted to be in and out and so after i read that study i looked i found other similar studies and now, like, I have a timer on my workout app set for three minutes. Between to force you I, to take it easy. And it's made a huge difference. Yeah. That and then lifting heavy weights has, I, I would say, made uh, a profound shift in my waist circumference.
1: Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I say the same with my sprint workouts and learning the insights from people like Dr. Craig Marker and others, but uh, taking that longer rest... Uh, you know, lessens the cellular destruction and the recovery time necessary from going and pushing yourself hard with lifting heavy weights or sprinting. And so, you know, the same workout or, or actually a better workout, a superior workout because of that rest allowed you to maintain a higher weight or run at a faster speed instead of have a you know a gradual breakdown and uh, depletion of, of energy and and uh, compromised form and all those things that happen when you're fighting it you know that mentality of sucking it up and persevering through a workout with not enough rest it takes so much recovery time uh, i'm i'm a big fan of you know when it's time to go explosive and do something impressive take enough rest where you can do it each 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 exercise you do in the gym. Yep.
2: Yeah. So I, 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 so I think the, the other thing that I've learned is that, um, and I, I don't know where I heard this, but it would have been, you know, in the time period of Lance winning all the bikes <laughs> in the late nineties. Right. But the idea was that, um, for endurance things, like, and, but I would say for weight training too, you want to push things up from below. So like, I'm a big fan of never overdoing it. I always do a little less than I think I can. And then, push things up from below. So my best mile and a half time in the military was during a period where I had to um, run with a a group of people a lot slower than me Monday through Thursdays, Ah. kind of a formation. And then on Fridays we did a timed run and it was a bunch of Marines and um, a bigger group of Navy people. So the Marines all thought like, like we're going to like, we own this. Right. And I ended up, um, over the course of those six weeks, um, beating all the Marines, but they were going all out every run and right. I was going out all out Friday. Yeah. And what I would do when I had to run that slow pace with the other people, I would just focus on breathing, like really zoning on that. So I, am a um, big proponent of like, to get the best results from any exercise or even meditation, our focus is going to make a huge difference. So like the last thing you want to do is be zoning out there. So paying attention to breathing was a real, like something I could focus on and improve. So the same when I used to do a lot of um, bicycle riding on the East coast back 20 years ago, my rides, um, any I did during the week, I was always trying to make sure that I was building fitness from going, doing less where the, I was doing a lot of my riding with a, a woman that taught spinning at the beginning of that bicycle season, she could kick my butt. She was way faster than I was in these 60, 100-mile rides we would do on the weekend. Um, but since I was pushing things from below up, about six weeks in, I pulled even with her. Another six weeks, I was way faster than her. Right. I moving. She had plateaued because she was just going for it way too much, I think. All those darn spinning classes blasting your legs every day. Nothing left on the weekend. Love it. So I think that, you know, I, and I think it's going to vary. When you get into high-level athletes, you obviously you have to dial it in specifically. But I, I think in terms of principles, that quite often what I see is people try to overdo anything. And when you overdo anything, it tends to be more of a stress signal than a, a yeah. ball. So even like, I have the gyms reopened in LA?
1: Uh, they're just uh, trickling open in West Coast here. Yeah. Tahoe. And uh, I've gone into mine for the first time in months and safe
2: distancing, wiping down the bars you know, just trying it out. Cause I know mine opened a week ago this past Monday and I still have in the app, I track it, you know, where I was with my weight training three months ago or three and a half months ago. So I wanted to still lift heavy, but instead of saying, All right, I'm going to do like the exact same weight and force myself to do the exact same number of repetitions. I just, the first day did that amount of weight, but one, like I'm going to, I'm going to intentionally underdo it. Yeah. I don't traumatize myself. So that's just my approach. Dr. Greg Kelly, a variety of
1: insights as promised. I love this conversation hitting on so many cool things. Uh, Where can we
2: learn more about Neurohacker collective and the stuff you're doing?
1: So our website
2: is um, neurohacker.com. We also are on Facebook, Instagram. Um, I do a fair amount of writing that we um, post on the neurohacker.com website under um, a learn tab. And then um, like um, neurohacker has its own podcast. I'm occasionally a guest on there or, uh, um, you know, sometimes in your role where I'm interviewing people. So those are the best ways. Um, and it's been awesome to be on your show. Love it. Thanks for connecting. Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: Da, 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 da.
0: Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30 month, or adding to your Primal approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.